Good evening, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of Mangum Talks. This is Spencer here for our show of Mangum Reads, and as usual, I'm here with BJ. BJ, how's it going? Pretty well, Spencer. How are you doing? Making it through, making it through. We've been gone for a little bit of a ways. Uh, a little over two weeks. Our... 18 days. Has it only been two weeks? Felt like longer. 18 days. I, I missed I miss talking with you, BJ, you know. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> well, we are handling one of your recommendations this time, BJ, so what can you tell us about it? Um, I actually can't tell you much about it. I, I mean, other than I've read it. Um, I didn't read too much. <laughs> good, good start. Uh, well, I didn't read too much into the author because uh, I've been lazy. But uh, I think you were, you were just telling me that he's a uh, computer scientist, which would make a lot of sense given the uh, subject material. But I have listened to and, and read some of his books, and he seems to be very uh, tech and sci-fi focused. Um, and his uh, audiobooks seem to be very well received uh, among the Audible uh, audience. Well, just to get you up to speed, subject this week will be We Are Legion, We Are Bob, a uh, science fiction novel by Dennis E. Taylor. As BJ said, I don't think either of us really know much about him, uh, helped by the fact that his Wikipedia page is minuscule and his website is delightfully archaic. Uh, all we can really tell is that he is a Canadian novelist uh, who used to work as a uh, computer programmer before hitting it big with the book and audible market and now works full time as a writer. So uh, I, I believe you mentioned last time that you were going to listen to the audiobook uh, narrated by Ray Porter, who had who did the entire trilogy and has done some other things. I have bought it. I have still not listened to it. I'm with the two flights I've got to come see you guys over the course of the next month. I'm assuming I've got plenty of time. Oh, yep. So so you won't get the joke that that I inserted at the uh, beginning of the podcast. Um. <sighs> I'm afraid not. You'll have to explain <laughs> it to me here uh, come our next episode after I've listened for a little bit. So, so yeah, he does uh, an impressive job, and, and I think you'll quite enjoy it. Um, actually, the other book by, and it's not even a book, honestly, by Dennis Taylor called Singularity is, na- is uh, narrated by Ray Porter again, but it's more of a production. And so instead of just recording the different characters, they really do as much as they can to create a sound landscape. So intercoms sound like intercoms, walkie-talkies sound like walkie-talkies, you know, near versus far. They do a lot more in producing, I don't know, a soundscape rather than just narrating a book. Yeah, from what you've told me from what I've heard about it, it seems like this is a book which was really meant for the audiobook to stand in its own right rather than being kind of a cash grab afterthought that it's actually its own production piece almost like it's a modern radio theater rather than it's just merely an additional means of listening to it yeah that that's really what it seems to be and you know maybe we'll uh address it at some point but actually we are legion we are bob they do a pretty good job of um or the narrator ray porter does a pretty good job of different voices and as we'll get into it with the plot and maybe characters a little bit later there are different iterations of basically the same character that you sort of need to keep straight and when you're reading it it might it's a little easier to keep very similar characters uh set apart but in other forms um it can sometimes be a lot harder 
and we've seen this in uh, Game of Thrones where there are a number of characters who had name changes or something like that because if their names sound somewhat similar it's a lot harder to tell them apart whereas if you're reading it in the book you know it's this one's spelled this way, this one's spelled that way, you know, it's it's supremely easy to tell them apart, you know, with a switch of an A and an O, you know, right. you know who, who's who. Yeah, as, as you're referencing for Game of Thrones, the famous switching of, um, what was it, Asha to Yara because of um, the fact that Osha at the time was another major character. Um, yeah, that seems like a workplace mishap for George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Well, as you're saying for this book, this is I'm very curious to listen to the audiobook because this is the, the, a story which is built upon a character eventually dividing up into about 10 different derivatives of the same person, all having separate chapters that are both vastly geographically apart, but also vastly separated in time. So I've heard repeatedly that this is one of the finest audiobooks to be found on Amazon, and I'm very curious to see how he pulls it off because... There were times that even just reading it as a book, I was having to keep notes to keep track of the various derivatives of Bob that exist by the time this story is done. Yeah, um, and I think because of how I consumed this story the first time and, and listening to it fairly quickly and listening to the, the next couple in the series, I had an easier time keeping things separate. Um, and the passive experience of an audiobook, I also think sort of, you know, if you miss a little bit, you sort of go with it. Um, whereas I would probably, I do a little bit less of that when I actually sit down and, and read a more physical copy. So yeah, when, when I was reading this through again on my Kindle, I was taking some more notes and, and a little bit more judicious in how I uh, actually approach the, the book itself. Well, let's dig into the book itself for right now. As you said, it's all too appropriate that our author is a computer programmer, which leads in my mind to believe that our main character may be a bit of a self-insert. He is himself a computer programmer, recently successful in terms of selling off his company to a more powerful and wealthy rival, and has gone off to a science fiction convention with a few of his employees to celebrate their now newfound wealth. So um, I, I've had some experience at conventions, but most of my convention experience is more for gaming conventions. I've, I don't think I've ever been to like a sci-fi convention or like a Trek convention. And so, well, I'm sure some of the things are very similar where there are pa panels. Um, funny enough on this podcast, you're somebody that I know has experience with a particular <laughs> fandom. Um, uh, yeah. I, if you uh, listen to some of our other podcasts, you will know that Spencer and Lee have made it a uh, yearly tradition to go to the Game of Thrones convention or Con of Thrones. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are going to be a lot more people devoted to more specific things, I would guess, than the uh, conventions that I've been to because the ones that I've been to are much more encompassing, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, a specific show convention like Game of Thrones is, as you said, pretty focused. For a science fiction convention like they're describing here, it's more just a celebration of the medium rather than a particular media. Yeah, um, so I guess, you know, it might be a little bit more similar to some of the ones that uh, I've attended. So it really sounds like um, maybe more of an amalgamation of uh, something that he wanted to have to get his plot to where he wanted it. Um, because I guess most of the conventions that I've been to, a lot of the panels are less 
you know, maybe speculative or something like that. So at this convention that he goes to, there's somebody that's talking about von Neumann probes, which are these probes that can self-replicate and uh, use basically the materials that they find in different solar systems to, you know, continuously expand and uh, explore the universe. And right. to do this, they have... Uh, basically 3d printers that can print anything on at the molecular level and so they can replicate themselves and anything that they might need to um, explore and scientifically categorize whatever they find in a given system working on essentially the assumption that space is really really big and the odds of finding any habitable worlds or truly interesting things are incredibly minuscule so one of the only ways we can actually effectively chart the cosmos would be if we use a degree of exponential growth to do so. We can send out probes as many as we want going in certain directions, but if said probes are able to replicate and make identical copies of themselves to continue scanning more systems, we can cover a vastly larger chunk of space and hopefully find something that we can actually make use of in much more short order than it would take if we just kept on sending out individual probes from Earth. So, so one of those it is very much NP things. Sorry, say it again. One of those P versus NP time things. Very much, very much so. So this is very much a, a true science fiction concept, a true concept of uh, futurism, of a real, of a real idea of why we may ultimately explore the cosmos. So it's interesting to see it played out. Um, I said he goes to this convention. He hears about von Neumann probes. He's gone there particularly to learn more about them. He learns a bit more about AI and what requirements would be necessary to make von Neumann probes possible. And that being one of the main things that we don't currently have in place to make work is a sufficient computer intelligence to control the probe. While he's going to this convention and celebrating with his now former co um, employees and coworkers, he also stops by a company called, I think it was Cryo Eterna. That's and right. Kind of just on a lark decides, eh, I'll plop down a few, what was it, $10,000 and st establish an endless trust and we'll get myself frozen in the event of my death. Yeah, I think it was a bit more than that. And it was actually something that he had considered for quite a while um, because True. there was an interaction he that he it. had with uh, his employee or f employee friends, whatever, um, that they had apparently tried to talk it, him out of it a number of times, but he sort of decided that this was going to be a thing that he could do. And since he's not particularly religious and not, you know, didn't have any family and probably a little sore coming off of a bad breakup, he decided that he wanted to uh, preserve himself for, for years to come. And as you said, another example there as well is how he of how he pre-planned this is I believe when he was talking with the uh, particular salesman, he uh, basically just been putting the guy through his paces, and that he'd already worked out the trust, he'd already worked out all the details. He just kind of wanted to make the guy's job difficult before he committed to it. So you're right, he's, this is something he'd planned for in advance, um, and also knew uh, essentially how much it would cost and how much you know things would need to be to set up something that would keep him around for what he deemed a sufficient amount of time and so he came in knowing about the price that he should pay and you know he wasn't going to haggle because he has you know essentially infinite amounts of money for the purpose of the story but he knew what he was doing before he got into it right and given the large time frame in question i suppose you probably wouldn't necessarily have to invest much in the trust i mean just given basic interest rate growth 
100 years in the future, you'd probably have a pretty significant amount of money unless inflation just utterly eats it away. Well, I think the, the point of the trust is basically to maintain uh, the facility. And so presumably you have to start with something fairly substantial if you're going to be taking away from it from day one. But mm-hmm. I guess you being the lawyer, you should know a little bit better as to what comes under that. I guess you're not an accountant. So. I'm not an accountant, and these kind of uh, endless trusts for the purpose of your own future maintenance are an iffy area of the law. The law tends to view legal rights as ending upon your death and then transitioning to other people. The idea of it essentially preserving your now deceased body parts for the purpose of their later resurrection, well, it's not currently scientifically possible, and it's only kind of a theoretical, theoretical event in the future where it ever could actually play out. So... I'd be curious to read more about it. these kind of, uh, not even a life trust, endless trusts well, have ever been challenged in court. Presumably you could set up like a nonprofit foundation. I mean, I, sh- I can't imagine that there aren't like tissue banks and stuff like that. I mean, I know for my research, we have a number of institutions that basically maintain uh, different uh, virus constructs and DNA constructs and things like that for people to use and it's a foundation or I assume a bunch of money given to a university and things like that so I'm sure there are many nonprofits that you could set up to do something like that um, well, of course actually the, the... one of the major ones is uh, the Allen Brain Institute mm-hmm. um, and that was set up by a computer programmer that might have been at some I don't know, some company that does something in computers. Um, what's that company called? You know, it's some small company. You know, the name escapes me right now, BJ. How about you just tell us all? It's, it's something small, micro, micro, micro mi- Microsoft. Right, 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 there yes. we go. You know, a company our listeners, I'm sure, have not really heard of anymore. We're in a post-Apple world. Yes. Um, so so uh, Paul Allen set up this major... Uh, neuroscience research center and a bunch of other things but it's one of the uh, cutting edge technology research centers for for neuroscience and so it's sort of kind of funny that it's like yes we're not at that point yet but the idea that computer scientists and people that have made money off of IT are heavily investing in in neuroscience and and AI type things is uh, very prescient given uh, I believe Facebook and Google are also uh, putting a bunch of money into those things. Well, in terms of appropriately prescient things, I think Bob may take the cake here because uh, here in our story, within pretty much mere moments of signing over this contract with uh, Cryo Eterna and hearing about von Neumann probes, he's rather abruptly struck by a car and killed. But don't... To which our story... Go ahead. Hmm? To which I was going to say, to which our story then jumps, I think it's 113 or 116 years into the future thereafter. Yeah, I was going to say, but don't worry, unlike the George R. R. Martin books where the main character is abruptly killed, he comes back the next page. <laughs> Barring more from uh, Lord of the Rings, I suppose, which George R. Martin, George R. R. Martin was specifically trying to respond to. Um, he does indeed come back in some shape or form as uh, Bob 2.0. As he pretty, quick, pretty quickly learns, uh, the exact plan that had been in place for his eventual resurrection was not followed according to the terms he'd probably set in place under the trust. Um, 
Instead, a series of events occurred in the future which were likely difficult to predict at the time that he signed the contract with, with Cryo Eterna. Uh, BJ, in short terms, what is the government of the United States like some 116 years in the future? Oh, uh, so I would say that there's basically been a takeover of the far right. Um, it is largely an ascetic, I presume, quote-unquote Christian, um, and, you know, the quote-unquote very very heavy here um and it, it's a very puritanical uh government that sort of nominally something that sounds vaguely democratic but very definitely isn't it's very definitely an autocracy with some theoc- theocratic overtones um there's a ministry of truth that sort of decides what the uh divine will of the uh, head of state is and sort of you know what's truth and and uh, what's okay with faith um, and the faith that they have and then basically they have taken over most of North America I believe um, and everybody that's within North America is sort of under this puritanical reign that um, probably evokes other such books as uh, Handmaiden's Tale, 1984, things like that. Though, honestly, I didn't read Handmaiden's Tale, nor did I enjoy watching it, so I might be pulling from the wrong book, but but that's sort of the sense that I get. I've not read Handmaiden's Tale either, but this definitely seems to be uh, some kind of mix of modern-day Iran and Big Brother brought together to form a theocracy governing most of what you said uh, is now North America. Um, as a result of this theocratic takeover and overthrow of the modern democratic government, the rights of those that were frozen in place in time and their various body parts quickly became non-existent. And they were declared legally dead. And so in kind of a profound act of hypocrisy, rather than have them buried and prepared with proper Christian rights, they instead decided to sell the parts off to the highest bidder. Well, Bob you know, being... if you can make some money... Why, why would you do anything else? I mean, you know, sort of alms for the, uh, for the rich. I suppose that could be the justification, of course. Let's sell off these parts so that we can use the money acquired for good Christian purposes. Well, I, I guess I would say that this, uh, this theocracy leans more, for me, towards the uh, Saturday morning TV preacher rather than the... Uh, <laughs> It, it def- definitely has an evangelist bend attached to it. Uh, the Joel Osteen of of Christians, oh, sure. rather than the uh, I don't know yeah. what another good example is because they're pious and I don't know who they are. There, there are several aspects of this story of where the author seems to flirt with just willful parody, and uh, the government, which literally calls itself faith and seems very fond of acronyms is pretty much seemingly intended to be a parody of what everyone would imagine a far-right Christian theocracy would be like. Yeah, it, it's the thunderous Sunday preacher given power over, you know, essentially a continent. And he points this out, He or let's say he hammers it in with basically every government official looking like the austere, old, angry preacher that's telling you about the hellfire that's going to rain upon you because um you looked at anybody other than you know the the mother mary 
oh, all real fire and brim, brim, uh, brimstone types that are mostly focused on fighting with each other about with the proper interpretation of what is God and what is not God, rather than actually progressing the uh, society as a whole. But um, mm. but they they do want to make sure that they are better than their neighbors because that is you know <laughs> maybe the most important thing. Make uh, it, it, faith great again. It's good to see that capitalism is still alive, at least as a philosophy. It's not that I'm necessarily doing well. It's that I'm doing better than you. Yes. And so um, somewhat unsurprisingly, they've essentially entered an arms and space and sort of everything else race with the countries around them. And to deal with this, all of the empires or or conglomerates or um, whatever the other uh, groups are, there's, uh, let's see, the Chinese the Brazilians, the Australians, um, uh, United Europe, whatever they call it. Yeah, the and you know the Middle East that never gets anything done because that's a trope that everybody loves to uh, play with. And it, admittedly, even the current l- rulers of the Middle East have joked that they're presently driving Mercedes, their sons will drive Land Rovers, and their grandchildren will be back on camels. So. It, it's a common trope that the Middle East is going to fall apart within the next few generations. Yes. Um, and so essentially, uh, because they have this this race, they have figured out this technology to, rein, uh, to create an AI basically from a brain. And so um, basically so- shortly after Bob wakes up, it's explained to him that um, they have taken his brain and all the neural connections, and uh, I'm going to get hand-wavy here because if I go too far into this, it's going to bother me more than it should. Um, they basically recreate him in a virtual setting, and every one of these countries is doing something similar to develop a von Neumann probe, to which Bob, it, when he hears about this, is ecstatic. The the book is generally pretty pretty hard science fiction and a lot of things that it shows, but one of the most foundational elements of it is that it, impar- it's, it accepts the idea that one can scan a brain and make an exact copy of a person, which, far as I know about how science works, doesn't really fully describe how that could go down. Because when you're scanning a brain... You're also not, say, scanning their endocrine system and how their various hormones well, and other wait, things wait, 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 wait. flow through their bloodstream would work. So so they do are, are specific enough that it's like they say that with 3D printers you can get atom for atom placement and they do kind of say that you can get atom for atom scanning, How? but it's destructive. And so he's hand-wavy in, a, I feel like, a less annoying way than you know, well, we don't have the endocrine system. It's like, well, you have everything that it was in his blood at the time. And yes, specific endocrine systems from person to person are going to vary some, but I mean, depending on where you decide the brain ends, the only thing that you're going to be missing is, you know, adrenaline. Not just adrenaline, but your very very much emotional response, which they kind of just hand wave as if hey, it's a separate function we've also kind of automated that you can control remotely. As said, it the idea of, with how advanced the three D printers that they have that they're describing, 
one could hand wave it on that, that they've just completely artificially in code replicated what he is. Um, but as I said, it's a necessary kind of hand wave to get, to keep the story going, which I don't buy, but it's just a foundational issue. We can go on from there. As you say, so you're good with hobbits, uh, not with hand waving for, I'm good with what? You're good with hobbits, less so, uh, science fiction hand waving. Okay. What, what, what's wrong with little people? There are little people both in the world and, histo- and historically. We have, no, we, have, we have no frame of reference to say that one can essentially just digitally code a brain and replicate an individual. Well, not for humans, but they've done pretty good jobs with uh, sea slugs and ants. <laughs> and, you know, they're working their way up. We're not there yet. And possibly within 116 years, such will, be, such will occur. I can't say for sure. However, one thing I can say for sure is that I probably would not be doing as well with the situation as Bob is. Bob, as you said, is really down with the idea that they've set for him. He recognizes that he's essentially a slave. He is a body part that was sold to a company. He has no choice about the matter, and he's essentially undergoing the most rigorous and ultimately lethal job trial known to man, in which he and five other, four other, I think they're called, are they called replicants? They are called replicants, or they're called replicants by the Ministry of Truth, I believe. Barring from Blade Runner, fine, mm-hmm. uh, are essentially given the choice of compete. Well, not even choice. They said you will compete in this. If you don't succeed, you will either be immediately killed or you will operate a garbage truck for the rest of known human history. Well, so so Bob kind of brings that up, and and I think it's more as we get more details, it seems much more that this is a difficult process rather than a process that at least the group that that is working with him is it's not their goal to only have one and to terminate them it's their goal to get the the replicants up to speed and be able to function in a von neumann probe they, they take pains to say frequently that it is an incredibly expensive and difficult process to to produce one of these replicants and due to bureaucratic infighting and limited funding they only have the resources necessary to make one replicant really a successful von neumann probe it originally planned on five but now they only really have hopes that if they invest all of their remaining resources into one individual they might just make it work and beat their rivals to the punch and getting this probe launched off into the cosmos um and i i think it is interesting that um Basically, they they talk about the state of politics, so there's internal fighting and external fighting, so they're worried about sabotage from other uh, empires, and they're worried about internal sabotage from, you know, somebody from the Ministry of Truth or some other faction within or with from without the government that just sort of decides that this is against the faith and shouldn't exist, and so basically it's a heavily guarded facility, and... Um, one of the early things that, that we see are visits from um, somebody from the Ministry of Truth and, you know, they basically try and instill the fear of God in, into this group um, who is seems to be some of the last holdouts of the less than religious. Um, and then one of the other major things is they have... Um, 
an attack on the facility that, you know, they're not really sure where it comes from. And, and this is where we sort of see Bob starting to be able to take control of external things around him. Um, and they have what they call roamers, which are basically these remote uh, spiders that can do a variety of different tasks, basically um, assembly and repair and all the, the various things that he would need to do to um, function as a probe. Yeah, the key principle behind all of this is that, uh, well, the idea that for this von Neumann probe to work, they can't just simply put it in the hands of an AI. They need something that is of adaptive intelligence that'll be able to respond to new events and coordinate accordingly. Essentially a governing force for the various other AIs that'll control these roamers. Bob is the one that they're tasking with this role. And through essentially just kind of working as a remote software programmer, he can just set various lines of code and set various parameters and mission objectives for these roamer AIs, which they'll then carry about based on the parameters that he's set. He's essentially working as a kind of overseer or union foreman over various projects rather than necessarily having to control each individual motion. In fact, it's more successful ultimately if he doesn't get involved in that. And as you say, in the process of essentially learning how to put blocks together and control cute little spider organisms, he goes through a series of events of people directly trying to kill him, both for fundamentalist religious reasons and also just sheer intergovernment conflict, including, as you said, various political factions that have straight up set bombs to blow him up, the possibility of a nuclear weapon hiding out under the facility to nuke it in the case that he ever gets quote-unquote out, and do we ever actually know who sends the various the armed group of assassins to kill him, whether that's a different government or an interfaction within the government that does um, it? I think the going theory that um, Dr. Landers had was that it was another government, um, basically because they're training and how they did it, um, because... Or it was a faction that was extra governmental because the government could shut them down at any time. And so right. it seems that it's, to me, and I think what he was saying is it's unlikely that it's uh, somebody within the government. So so it's either, you know, some uh, terrorist faction or, or another government. Yeah, and... Bob, despite the, the will of the various people there, because as we later find out in the event that it is determined that he has escaped or is not immediately under their control, there's a risk the entire facility could just be nuked with the press of a button. Bob decides to intervene, and using his newfound knowledge and control of his roamers, pretty much successfully defeats or at least helps weaken the attacking force so that the security guards in the facility can force their surrender. And... Uh, Throughout all of this, he starts to establish a fairly close relationship with the lead researcher, as you said, a Dr. Landers, who I think he basically describes as being an identical repl identical replica of Sigmund Freud in appearance. Yep. Uh, Dr. Landers is essentially a mix between a computer coder, psychiatrist, and master of history, in that he's able to interact with Bob in a way that few other people can, that either due to the natural progression of time or the effects of the uh, faith government, English language itself is barely even comprehensible to Bob. So Landers serves in many ways as one of his few lifelines and connections to the world, both intentionally, and that he's one of the few people with the project he's ever exposed to, and also just from the kind of personal relationship they establish as they go through their various adventures together. And it's as a result of this close connection that Landers eventually levels with him about a few aspects of the project that Bob otherwise wouldn't be aware of. One of them essentially being 
how to put it, mind control. Is that a fair summary, BJ? Yeah, that that sounds about right. That basically the the government is using them for using Bob for a specific purpose, and um, prior to his his launch, base there's a a nice little note from Doctor Landers that basically says, you know, there's a I'm sure there's a bunch of code for that they're going to try and use to force you to do what they want, and. Or kill you. Yes, or kill you, so, you know, sort of depending on how recalcitrant you are. And um, here are some things that I know about, and here are some things to look for. Um, but basically, maybe goes with his conscience and against his uh, government directives of preserving this uh, faith probe rather than having, you know, a, an unfettered AI to. Uh, explore the galaxy and and I think it's partially because of his connection with Bob but also he recognizes that Bob wants to do this he wants to explore the galaxy he wants to um, send humanity back information about habitable worlds because it's essentially his boyhood dream Bob in many ways among the various replicants they're looking for they're kind of looking for an odd duck and Bob fits it perfectly and that Bob, unlike many other people probably, is perfectly content to be alone, is perfectly content to just have his purpose and his mission and his goals and his little hobbies, and doesn't need any interactivity, doesn't need another world to be around him. And so the idea of being a von Neumann probe to Bob is about as close as he could get to heaven in what is essentially his afterlife. That's an interesting way of putting it, that um, it'd be very funny if... Well, not funny, because this is the worst uh, twist and trope out there, but this is his afterlife. You know, what what better heaven could he ask for? Uh, if this was a different book and you hadn't already told me that he actually is going to become a von Neumann probe, this could have been a very tropey short story of, you know, he goes to talk with Cryoeterna, he goes and learns about von Neumann probes, he dies, and then he immediately wakes up getting set up to be a von Neumann probe. That's a Twilight Zone episode just waiting to happen right there in terms of the ultimate twist that's going to play out at the end of that. Well, I mean, I mean essentially, that that was a Twilight Zone episode um, where essentially a man is at his hanging and then he imagines that he escapes and... and... The, the incident at Owl Creek Bridge. Yes. A, a wonderful Twilight Zone episode and a fantastic bit of literature, too. Um, but yeah, that. Yes. It is essentially... <laughs> it, this was being. This could well have been set up for that plot line, just on how very much they telegraph what is going to happen to him. So it could have yeah. an obvious twist. This is essentially just his little last moments of consciousness that he's imagining his perfect afterlife. But the book does not go in that direction. It said chooses to go in a much more science fictiony direction. Yes. Of where eventually, through many dangers of all the various other replicants actually being destroyed or shut down, his own backup being obliterated, them needing to move forward the project due to constant attacks and threats. And, and, him and basically the other empires getting ready to launch because they want to be first because the first person, because this is an exponential thing, the launching of these von Neumann probes, the first one out there is going to have a major advantage to essentially okay. colonizing the entire universe. And so whichever government does that is essentially going to be the dominant force in 
the universe from then on. With each one being coming from what we hear, coming from a very different um, starting point and also a different, very different plan for how they're going to go about it. I mean, they describe the... What is the name of the European government? I won't keep on saying the UAE, but that's an existing nation state, so I'm probably getting that wrong. We find out a little bit about the different replicants, but the Brazil group is a much more military-based uh, empire. Um, I think it's the mm -hmm. Brazilian Empire, and... Which seemingly rules most, if not all, of South America. Yeah, um, which is kind of interesting. It, it, it's almost a throwback from the Portuguese uh, being a very ship-based military and oh, sure. controlling uh, a, a large a large empire. Everybody forgets that the Portuguese before the Spanish were the ones who ruled most of the world, at least for a period of time. Then Spain essentially decided to conquer them to essentially take it all over. But we're getting into a history <laughs> lesson at that point. As you said, the more military-focused empire of Brazil plans to send out probes that are not necessarily built for replicating or even mining very efficiently, but are really heavily armed. Yeah. The uh, the European governments essentially have a massive edge in terms of um, technology and also the possibility of actually making use of the colonies in terms of sending out colony ships or various other expeditions to put humans and bases out there. The Australians, nobody really knows about in terms of what they may have planned. And the Chinese are so far behind a replicant technology that they're essentially going to just have an AI control the project, which everybody pretty much poo-poos as being a really dumb idea that won't work. Um, due to Landers' determination and planning out, Bob is the first one that gets in position. And so while in orbit getting ready to launch, Bob essentially gets to see the start of World War III happen in the efforts of these various governments to prevent him from launching. And, and and his own government. And so one of the other things that's in this letter is that um, it's likely that their own government doesn't want to see this happen because they see this as a, uh, an abomination and uh, uh, an affront against some god that they've decided doesn't like this. And um, so they basically give him the keys to his ship. They disable his the possibility of him being remotely controlled, saying that they essentially just trust him to carry out his mission as he will. They warn him about the possibility of there being a bomb aboard him, um, and they just kind of count on him to fulfill the mission as he's promised rather than as they can control him to do. And after he reads this letter, after he gets uploaded, after he's essentially doing his mission check... Um, and this is one of the first places that we see the time dilation of being a computer very important uh, during his training he got into fit a little bit with the idea of time dilation uh, him being a computer he can think on a much higher order than we are capable of and as a result of that he can essentially slow time minutes to microseconds um and vice versa that he can slow or accelerate time at will in terms of how he chooses to experience it which given the fact that there is no faster than light travel in this universe would be incredibly useful for the sake of sanity if you could change your perspective of time as you go through space but also for the high pressure moment that he's about to start with it can be very useful to compress what is a few seconds of time into hours of actual experience to plot it out what you're going to do with it exactly and so, so he, as he's and 
he doesn't have any excuse to uh, not read the terms and conditions of his software and click OK. And so he takes this uh, this very opportunity he is software. <laughs> um, to basically read through his software manual and uh, try and find any any viruses or hitches or anything else. And while he's reading this letter from from Dr. Landers and um, we also haven't introduced sort of the other major character that's just starting to be a character at this point, which is Guppy, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't take in my notes what it stands for, but it's basically his, his assistant. It's a semi, it's a, it's an AI that goes along with him that helps him can uh, basically deal with higher level functions in this um, AI assistance deals with maybe the more, uh, detail-oriented things, and and he can interact with uh, basically as a ship's computer. Right. I kind of interpreted Guppy as being essentially the ship to which he's kind of just a passenger on board. That it's the overarching AI that's controlling all the other AIs and the actual process of the ship, and he is like the captain on the bridge, is just kind of giving directions through it. Yes. But as he's going through his pre-flight check, reading all the aspects of his, you know terms of limited use with respect to his life and software, uh, he starts to get a message from Dr. Landers, which essentially, as he's slowly trying to divide each word out as long as possible through his little perspective of time, determines that missiles incoming, bomb on board, do with that as you will. Yeah. Uh, Figure out what you're going to do, but do it now. And pretty quickly looks up to see two missiles in rapid pursuit headed straight for him, with limited possibilities of getting away with his with his skin intact uh yeah so essentially this starts um and i i like how he does it but this basically sets the tone of the space battles that they're in some ways fast and in some ways slow um they're much Mm -hmm. more chess games with a bit of uh sub warfare slash aerial warfare thrown in um, where you know you have a bunch of uh, sort of flares that you can shoot out to try and distract incoming missiles, and mm-hmm. you have you know basically the entire area to to run away as fast as you can. So a little bit more uh, of a strike fighter than than a bomber, but yeah, and I like that it goes much more realistic than say uh, star wars you know inner dogfighting tactics that space is massive you're moving at incredible speeds any decision that you make a couple hours previously will govern how the half a second availability of attack that you actually have as you're going past somebody yes and if a missile is locked in on you you don't dodge it it there's no friction in space it's not going to miss you if it's set to come after you the only thing you can really do is find some means of either distracting it with something else or hitting it with something before it hits you. Um, and so he, essentially there's a little bit of the implied uh, danger, but the book probably would be pretty sad if it was, and then it exploded the end. Yeah, um, Bob, Bob gets away, but gets to essentially see the starts of what's going to be the war, the war that destroys the world occurring behind him, as what originally starts out as two missiles quickly results in a blown-up space station, uh, various battleships squaring off in orbit, and, and as he gets farther and farther out, talk of 
war quickly reaching a global stage and eventually thermonuclear stage. Yep. But she sort of gets as, you know, a couple of x-rays from back from Earth. And, and so it's at this point that he has to sort of decide where he's going um, because... Um, and, you know, I also appreciate and I don't know my orbital mechanics as much as I should probably. And, and maybe you've played a little bit more Kerbal Space Program. Um, but he basically ends up using the gravity of, you know, a couple of planets to, to start start him on his way towards. Um, and he basically has to choose between, um, what was it, Andromeda? Yeah, they decide uh, not to send him to the closest uh, closest planetary system. Oh, the planetary Alpha system. Centauri. Yeah, Alpha Centauri. Not an, Andromeda is the next uh, galaxy over, which is a little bit far yeah. away. Um, that, would, that, would have been, that would have been a trip. But they, I think, rather wisely decide not to send him to Alpha Centauri because they rightfully assume everybody else is probably going to be going there. So let's go to the second closest one, which I think is... Epsilon Aradani. Epsilon, Epsilon Aradani or something? Yeah, uh, well, so... I guess I have pronunciations because I listened to it, and they call it Epsilon Eridani. Um, that was but, fine. You know, I, I don't think that, that it matters much. And so um, basically he has a number of years at this point because he doesn't. they don't have faster than light travel, but they have near light travel mm-hmm. um, to figure out what he's going to do, do some self-improvements, get all the bugs out of his code, and decide what he wants to do in terms of well life the universe and everything one of the big questions being one of the last messages that he gets from home before home essentially becomes an irradiated pile of waste is that um a brazilian probe was launched about two weeks after him and while it appears slower it appears to be heading into the exact same system that he is and unlike him is heavily armed yes um has missiles with uh, explosives and and so because the Brazilians are a much more uh, war centered or war focused empire, they have explosive technology. Where essentially at the moment, Bob has small spiders and big spiders, and that's about it. Small spiders, big spiders, and what he eventually seems to create essentially are jet propelled bowling balls. Yes. Um, that he calls busters uh, where Bob yeah Bob essentially decides that uh, he's not really comfortable with the idea of repli- of um, using 3d printers to make explosives because they go you know, nothing could possibly go wrong there when you're essentially making jet uh, making explosive materials inside you to uh, use to use for various weapons so he instead decides to essentially put smaller equivalents of the drive that's powering him on thousand ton thousand ton spheres of metal yeah he, he decides that the uh swamp dragon model of uh organism is not the the way to go <laughs> good good reference to prior reading material bravo bj he decides not to take the arrow route in terms of winning this encounter um but, uh, so basically he figures out a plan and uh between then and now he sort of revamps his uh living situation and so as much as he says that he's a loner and is you know more than happy to be alone he creates sort of his uh holodeck where you know he has his favorite cat 
Um, and he has Guppy uh, that he makes Admiral Akbar mm-hmm. and um, has basically a desk and, and things that um, make him comfortable. And so he sets up this virtual reality that um, that will continue throughout the book to that he'll try and improve and improve and really make into um, as close to reality as he can. And... I think I will start here and say there are many, 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 many references to other sci-fi and a lot of inside jokes that I'm sure I didn't get all of them. And I just (laughs) realized that I have a feeling that Spike the cat. It's Data's, right? Yep. No, no, no. I think Data's cat. Was Data's Data's Spike or Spot? It might have been Spot. Uh, Oh, it it is Spot. Spot. It is not Spike. So Spike might be uh, something real or some other thing that I that I don't know. <laughs> this book, these books are essentially kind of, um, this book is kind of meant as um, a bit of satire about various elements, but otherwise just an extended homage to every bit of sci-fi this author apparently finds interesting. Because as you said, they are just chock full of references. Yeah. I mean, from, every, from the very beginning. He is a replicant. That is a straight Blade Runner reference in so many ways. Yes. Um, and, and I think they're peppered through in a manner that if you don't recognize them, you're not missing a lot. But if you don't yeah. recognize them, you're not familiar with a lot of culture that, I mean, you don't need to know the individual Star Trek episodes to get the Star Trek joke. You essentially need to have seen a couple and know that it's a thing. Right. Um, or even just the names of the characters are all extended references to various aspects of uh, geek fandom. Yes. To jump ahead a little bit, um, Bob successfully uses the next 10 years to prepare himself for this battle. And despite having no military training, despite having no uh, prior experience with uh, space battles, he reads a lot of Sun Tzu, chasing after him. The Art of War, you know. Uh, he, it's very he has important. He frequently read The Art of War, which is at this point about. Was it 2,500 years removed from relevant uh, military tactics? Sort of. The, you know, it, it's, it's, also, it's also much more of a strategic guide than the immediate tactical engagement that he's about to focus on. Yes. But, you know, he makes use of what he got. And what he got and what his plan is turns out working out rather well against this experienced uh, Brazilian captain that's sent after him. And it's I guess it's really unclear... Um what the state of military power is um, because we just sort of get a brief, okay, they have spaceships and you need to get out of here because war be declared and or war were declared. And, you know, he just sort of runs and we know that they have missiles like ship to ship missiles, but that's sort of it. Um, and we have a little bit of an idea of basically the capable speeds that they have. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of times that uh, Bob is so damn excited about going to do this mission, he asks about one tenth of the questions that I would have asked in a similar situation. He's just so down with the idea of yeah, launch me tomorrow. I'm great with it in terms of uh, going after Beavon Newman Breb. That we don't necessarily get as much of a perspective on the current state of the world or technology, other than some kind of brief glossing over. And what he kind of vaguely describes as he's looking through his various encyclopedias aboard ship after it gets launched. Yeah. And I think some of that, 
is explained away by the fact that the government's not sharing any secrets and basically any discussion of recent history is a no-no and this isn't a military venture so their Mm -hmm. knowledge of other military capabilities is probably not huge i mean you know i i was about to ask you but you might not be the best person to ask you know do you know what you know china's military capabilities are and and i know you have a little bit of a fetishism for you know military things but you probably don't know the exact specifications of you know the most recent chinese uh fighter jet i yeah i mean my level of knowledge is pretty much wikipedia or guinness or you know world almanac related i couldn't go into high detail about it and bob even laments as he's just he's going through the technology to some degree that possibly as a result of faith being a pretty well certain elements of them being pretty anti-technology a lot of various forms of technology have not really progressed. I mean, Bob's level of software coding is viewed as so astounding that various uh, leading scientists at the time want to make copies of him so that they can make use of his skills going forward. That really, other than in 3D printers and this new subspace drive that they just now invented, technology has progressed at a rather disturbingly slow rate from Bob's perspective. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and a lot of things are still sort of status quo so the internet is basically the same other than it's um heavily censored um and and so he's very disappointed in that but i think that sort of gives the gives the author the out of not having to try and figure out what you know what information maybe he should have had um and dealing with all of the other nations and and all of the other things that might be associated with that and just sort of say, okay, well, the other guy is fast and has some missiles and nothing's really progressed because of uh, political infighting or whatever. Right. An important detail to point out that you kind of already referenced is that Bob continually describes himself as being a loner who's really interested in this mission, who's looking forward to it more than anything, who signed up for this cryos freezing software because he's not a humanist, not that close with his family and whatever else. But we see several moments over the course of this that Bob may not have the most accurate or complete perspective on himself. That the first thing, one of the first things that he does once he gets launched into space is he makes a digital body of himself in a world to inhabit inside it. And a friend. That, hmm? And a fishy friend. And a fishy friend. That when he finally, after mon- months and years maybe of not having control, reactivates his essentially emotion chip data style, he collapses into a puddle of pain and agony and loss as it does hit him like a truck, everything that he now has been separated from and lost forever. Yep. All his in family, terms of his family, his in terms of his life, in terms of the entire world that he used to know, that he is truly alone and that is truly terrifying even to him, or truly painful even to him. Yep. I, and I'm sure the uh, She Who Will Not Be Named was a, a casual throw away to to all of the uh harry potter fans very possible very possible which i thought was funny Um, that that's essentially never referenced again you know or 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 at least not really in this book that you know there was his ex-girlfriend jenny and there was a big deal and then he was turned on and whatever else and it was like yeah we don't care about that part anymore yeah that one's kind of left behind that that one just kind of kind of becomes details in the background which i guess 
once you've literally died and lost all the rest of your life and universe, you kind of it kind of gives you a certain degree of insight into what really matters. Yep. Um, but jumping back to the plot, uh, he successfully using pretty novel and successive, successive tactics, and also the fact that his opponent is willingly suicidal under the hope that other probes may eventually be coming, defeats this captain of the Brazilian mem- uh, military and now is left with a uh, solar system to explore and all the universe to follow behind it with whatever mission he so wishes. Yep. Um, and so he actually, you know, vaguely and, and briefly talks to uh, Colonel uh, Madeiras, Ernesto. Um, so I, I thought it was funny that it was essentially Madeira, um, like the drink. But um, basically, you know, he... he this this uh, this other probe seems hell bent on killing him, and and I believe this is where he has the uh, brief interaction, which was basically like, "Hey, dude, we're we're space probes, and we have right. the entire universe out in front of us, and the Earth you were fighting for, the government of Brazil that you were loyal to, is almost certainly dead to the last man. Why fight?" We have all the freedom of the world and no obligations back there to continue to war over. But doesn't work. Yeah, but then Cap- then the missiles come. Sorry, Captain Kirk, you couldn't talk down this Cleon. Um, <laughs> but he successfully defeats his opponent and then essentially decides to set up shop that there is a halfway habitable world, maybe someday with a certain amount of terraforming, and a substantial amount of resources to be found in the system. And so both to essentially show his loyalty and respect to uh, Dr. Landers and the mission that he was sent out on, and also because Guppy has a goal and Guppy will not be denied for so long. Uh, yes, there are things that, that, that Guppy... Well, also, he's a von Neumann probe, so... Well, Guppy? No, no, no. Bob is a von Neumann probe, a self-replicating probe, and so, uh, you know, as much as he doesn't want to replicate himself to explore the universe because he's being weird about it um it it, it, it kind of factors into there's this this, before he launches bob has a conversation with himself where he kind of tries to determine whether he himself is content with the idea that he is alive and he asks himself essentially a three-part question about the classic elements of consciousness one of the ones he notably does not ask himself is any questions about individuality because he knows he's going to lose that one um that one of the arguments about life is that the ability is the idea that it can't be perfectly replicated, that it is indeed unique, that it can't simply be made a copy of and there be multiple entities existing. Um, that is an idea of life. It doesn't necessarily work on the multi cell on the, on the single cell level. Um, but it's one that Bob notably can't, can't really reconcile that his purpose is to make more copies of himself. And so if he is indeed just something that can be easily made again, something that can just be copied in code and have two existing and functioning, it could arguably undermine his idea of himself as a living organism. But he is a von Neumann probe. He does have Guppy looking very Admiral Akbar sternly at him for every minute that he doesn't start going about that mission. And so and he also very begru- doesn't really mm-hmm. he has many things to do. Some of them are exploration and some of them are playing within the system. And so I feel like with all of those sort of coming to a head, he's like, all right, well, I guess I'll copy myself. Right. I'll do this aspect of my mission code 
get it done, and then I can go off and do whatever I want. This will be my token gesture to fulfilling my mission. Yep, and so he creates, I believe, three different uh, yeah. copies. Th- three bobs, and again... And new ship. Really, and, and three ships, and a, and a base, essentially, from which they are constructed from, and a new base in the system from which new colonization could occur. Yep. But um, him still warring with this idea of him being Bob, him being alive, them needing to be unique and separate and distinct for them to be truly living organisms in their own right, he sets two ground rules right away before he agrees to replicate himself. Um, BJ, remember what those are? Um, That they were all going to have different names. Yep. Upon coming to life, they immediately had to think of a new name for themselves. They had to, Um, and the senior Bob gets priority. <laughs> Those are the only ground rules he really sets. I think he probably could have stand to have a few more, but that's good enough to start. Well, um, he only has himself to, to blame. Very well said, BJ. Very well said. Um, so upon creating this base, upon creating these three new bobs, his... How do we want to put this? Progeny. Do we want to call them children? Uh, There's certainly an element of... Yeah, I think uh, progeny is... I think that's what they use. Progeny is good um, progeny is a good phrase so this is where the book starts to get complex because these various progeny don't necessarily have to overlap with their stories they are unique individuals they're all from the same bob but very quickly they start to develop their own personalities almost at the immediate moment they start having their own names for themselves which is you know, it's an interesting philosophical point we'll probably dwell over on the next episode but in terms of just the characters bob number two number two is rather appropriately named, names himself Riker and adopts a very Riker kind of mentality in a very militant Star Trek universe. And, you know, he in his VR, he has the Starship Enterprise. And so Bob calls him number two for, for a little while, you know, while he's trying to figure out a name. And so very quickly he's like, all right, well, fine, I'll go for it. I'll, you know, I'll go for Riker. Um, which I also thought was kind of funny because that means that his name is William, uh, which comes up a little bit later. And we also have Bill. True. And yes. uh, Bill and the third one is Milo. Actually, uh, he makes, not that I think about it, he actually makes four because we also have Mario too. Oh yeah, My- Mario and Milo. Um, and then... And so by a quirk of happenstance, um, their radar is ineffectual on one of the tri- ships, meaning that he can't leave immediately. And this, is, this Bill. is Bill. And so he says, all right, well, since I can't see anything, I'll hang out here until stuff's repaired and, and set stuff up. And eventually, basically, Bill decides to stay in the Epsilon Eridani system and develops what he calls the skunk works where they basically work on tech and play around within the system and have a central Bob hub. Right. He essentially decides to eventually create and run the Bob net. He's kind of home base for all Bobs. The Bob universe kind of revolves around the base that Bill sets yes. up here in the Epsilon Eridani. This is the, the uh, titular point essentially the establishment of the babaverse now um just to say where everybody plans to go bill decides to stay there and essentially make home base camp for bobs 
uh, Riker decides he's going to make another clone of himself and go back to Earth to see what the current state of Soul is. Yeah, and basically um, he needs backup because who knows what's going on, you know, war-wise and whatever else. Um, Milo and Mario have no interest in doing either of those things and decide to go off in their own directions. Milo going off to almost impishly go check out and see whether the uh, solar system that we think Vulcan is in indeed has Vulcans. Um which is Omicron 2 Omicron, something? Yeah, Omicron squared Eridani. No. Uh, I had it somewhere. Something, something like that. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Mario basically decides to go off in the most distant direction possible just so he could have his own leg room. Um, and again, we see uh, Bob's confusion about his ultimate goals and perspective on himself here as it quickly becomes apparent that Bob's upon being copied are not the same in any sense of the word. That They seem to adopt the view that each Bob emphasizes certain aspects of the personality of the original Bob, yep. rather than being in any way similar to uh, his uh, predecessor, uh, to which he's the progeny of. And I think with Riker, there, there are a couple with, of reasons. You know, obviously, the author wanted more characters, because otherwise he is a single-character book that, you know, has very little interaction with anything or anybody else until, you know, the story progresses quite a bit more. And I think it's a little bit more interesting because you basically get different people reacting to each other that are very similar in many ways and, and some aspect changes, and he does essentially some hand-waving to have something more like progeny where there are there's some recombination of whatever it is that makes bob into a new person and it's an interesting point from what we know about uh, twins and cloning in in our our current universe is that we know that uh clones are in no way physically identical to each other that cloned cats can often have entirely different fur coloring um in terms of the personalities of twins that is a fun point that people have debated to no end, and there have been some very cruel experiments done on the subject, which have led to some interesting results. Um, have, you, have you ever heard that experiment of one, that one, I believe he was a Jewish doctor in New York, that uh, separated twins and triplets at birth and put them in different families to see if they would develop along the same lines despite that fact? Yeah, I thought you were going to go uh, some other direction with this, but but yeah, I, I'd heard something about that. I, I don't remember if it was ones that were given up for adoption or, or exactly what, but yeah, there was, um, I vaguely remember something like that. I don't remember like the outcome. Uh, I mean, the outcome, well, a, it proved very cruel. Several of the twins ultimately committed suicide once they were finally reunited or when they were separated each other from decades. But among the ones that were brought back together, it led to some fascinating results in that they had, despite being purposely placed in very different households in very different locations and very different families, all had disturbingly similar interests, likes, desires, and beliefs. Uh, they had married women of the same name. They had the same particular uh, preferences in terms of like even the pack of cigarettes that they liked. It was all kinds of these array of similar traits, despite the fact that they were being separate. Luckily, our, and as helps in terms of reading a novel on the subject, um, our author decides to pretty quickly distinguish them that either it's due to some quirk in the replicant coding process, or it's as a result of the fact that as they are brought into the world, they immediately have separate experiences and perspectives. Our Bob's almost immediately become incredibly different people Yeah. with, uh, I mean, how do we, how would we sum these up? Riker is militant, Riker humorless. Is Riker. <laughs> Riker is very much, 
Riker is the the non Playboy Riker. Riker once he grew the beard, Riker. Yes, R- Riker um, no longer Rikering uh, the people that he meets, but still, you know, bearded Riker. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way. Riker is not Rikering people. Very good. Uh, Bill is kind of state, calm, introspective, almost emotionally caring and supportive. He's kind of like the mother figure of these books. Yep. Um, um, Milo is kind of flippant, careless, doesn't give a damn, wants to do his yeah, own thing. Yeah, kind of rambunctious teenager that that says, screw you, mom and dad, I'm going to go off on my own, and, and does so. And Mario got a bit of the introspective loner goth in him and just wants to go off on his own and not interact with anybody ever again. Yeah. Uh, so long, guys. Um, maybe I'll see you in, you know, a couple millennia. You know, it's the advantage of being immortal. I can say, I'll see you in a thousand years, and that could perfectly well prove true, and what does it matter? Yep. We'll have some great stories to share when that happens. Um, And then we start getting uh, different uh, perspectives. And so it's sort of at this point that now that Bob is has split has uh replicated himself um and has various progeny that the not every uh one of his progeny but many of his progeny and he himself get separate uh chapter perspectives um and so essentially the the first one that we get is milo who uh goes off to omicron squared it, it, it's an interesting effort at nonlinear storytelling and that these various chapters are in no way connected with each other. He's not giving us a direct linear perspective of time or experience when he's going through these. Uh, it's that, mostly as a going different... time linear. What did you say? I think it's mostly time linear. No, he jumps back and forth. Um, he there'll, there'll be times of when, you know, Bob goes off in one direction, the original Original Bob, the only one who's actually named Bob from here on out. The only Bob Bob. Goes off to um, Delta something. What, what's Delta Iridani. What's the name Aridani. of the planet that he goes to? Sorry, say it again? Delta Iridani, I think. There's a lot of planets named Iridani in this, aren't there? I don't know. Um, he goes off in that direction, which is far enough away that it takes him longer to get there. Again, we're not moving fast from the speed of light. It's only so fast that you can go. So when Riker goes back to Earth or Milo goes to Omicron squared, whatever else... Mm-hmm. They are earlier in time, but we will every now and then jump to Bob or jump to Mario, who are years in the future beyond them, and then just keep on jumping back and forth between them. Um, and it, so I he does that a little bit, I think, so we don't have, and then they're in space, and they're going, <laughs> and they'll get somewhere sometime soon. And yep. do, 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 do. jumping in with Bob, yeah. he's got eight more light years left to go. Uh, we'll check back with him when more when more is happening. Um, so so skipping ahead a little bit, they basically develop communication so they can stay in touch. And at that point, we get a much more linear progression. Yeah. Um, um, but, at times, I mean, I believe there's even times where we will see a character in a different time in somebody else's perspective than we're seeing them in his quote unquote actual chapter. Gotcha which can be a little bit dis- a little bit disconcerting to keep track of at times about where they are at at any given moment. You almost have to kind of build your own time frame. Oh, but no, I don't re- uh, I guess from, from my perspective of listening to the story, I didn't get that. Um, and I didn't pay as much. So every chapter starts with a date. So I didn't pay as much attention with that. And every chapter starts with a quote and a date. And so 
it, it starts to happen a lot once Bill starts holding Bob Moots. Yes. Because when Bill's holding a Bob Moot, all the other Bobs that have built their own space stations to make use of his incredibly science fiction-y immediate cross space-time communication software, all the Bobs are there at Bill's time, regardless of what they're doing in their own chapters. Yes. And so there will be times of when all the Bobs are present in a Bill moment when we're not necessarily seeing what that Bob is doing until eight, uh, several other years later or before. Okay, yeah, I guess I... I... know that other bobs are there i just there i guess there was no reason to me that that occurred earlier or later than one of their chapters i'm cheating to a certain degree because in book two which i've already read because i actually really like this series a lot and was having fun with it uh we will see a lot of times of bob even talk original bob bob prime talking about his experiences years after or years before his actual chapter. We'll see him in one of Bill's chapters talking about his experiences at his Delta world that we've not necessarily seen yet. Okay, and I guess in my head, then a lot of the things that he talks about happen before then his then chapter. But that might have just been like, I reconstructed it in my head that way. <laughs> Once we eventually maybe make it to book two, if we decide to go there, we can talk about those particular moments. And I'll take better For notes. this... <laughs> for this it's going to be kind of hard to describe all of these plot points because essentially we now have five main characters where there was one and each is going off into an entirely different section of the universe in terms of where their plot is going um yeah so um i think it would make sense to sort of split things up into bob prime okay. um the dealing with the uh riker and then sort of everybody else. The, uh, those are really the main plots. Bill's just kind of tinkering with various things. He comes up with some impre- incredible technology, but as a result of him kind of staying in one place, it's easier to kind of paraphrase what he does. Cliff notes it. Um, Milo's not very long for this Earth, is it, or this universe, as it turns <laughs> out. And Mario doesn't really get much of a role in this book other than finding what seemingly could be a major plot point going forward yes um and that's sort of at the very end of the book and so very much so. um and right. i i think as a as a nod to some of the other things that we've done maybe we should split uh the plot up into two episodes and Fine why me. don't we quickly you know we'll cover what happens with Riker and what happens with bob and bill um, and then we'll sort of leave the resolution of those main plot lines uh, for the next episode. We, we can kind of lump part of Milo in with uh, kind of Riker, because the main relevant thing that Milo does, and we can just describe that right now, is that when he goes to the Vulcan home system, he, by miracle, finds not one but two twin planets in orbit around each other. All, both perfectly habitable, both ripe for... Uh, almost immediate colonization. And what does he name them? Given that we've sent nerds out to explore the universe, he names them Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Vulcan, Spencer. Uh, you Sorry, you're right. Romulus and Vulcan, you're correct. Yes, Romulus and Remus would be a different kind of nerd, maybe a little bit more up your alley. Actually, I was even jumping ahead there because Romulus and Remus it would be if it was just the Romulan home planet in the, in the Star Trek universe because they have the sister moon of Remus. Yeah. But again, getting way too nerdy. You're right. <laughs> Romulus and Vulcan. Um, but he sends that data back and then goes off to explore a different universe. Uh, and 
a different solar system, and then we'll address what happens to him in the next episode. Yeah. But uh, let's start with uh, Riker first, because he's the most, I'd say, human-centric plotline of all this. Yeah. So Riker decides that you know he's gonna he's gonna help establish the Federation. Basically, you know, he's gonna go back and and see if there are any humans left, and if they are, you know, say, hey, you know, we have we have fancy technology and new planets, and and you know, come out and explore with us, or you know, whatever, and he'll sort of figure out what he wants to do from there once they figure out what's going on with earth because they know there have been a bunch of thermonuclear explosions so if there's life left they're going to sort of bring them out of the uh nuclear winter that they cause themselves um, right. and, and, it, and if there isn't life left it'd be useful information for all the bobs to know that there's no longer a need to chart these planets and mark them and send them back for humanity because there's no longer anyone there to accept the messages right and so but since he's essentially going to a war zone he creates a another bob but i guess another Riker, um and he gets homer which in no way goes according to plan for what he was hoping for in terms of a clone yes um and his his we quickly learned that the progeny are again taking aspects of original bob not their immediate predecessor or parent. Yes, and uh, and so there are a bunch of discussions of, you know, what version should they be copying? Um, should they be copying themselves up until this point? Should they be copying, you know, some backup that they have set at some point? Um, but when Riker clones himself, he gets a Bob that in his VR literally takes on Homer. And so he looks like the cartoon character and, you know, explodes his head and does sort of all of the things that a cartoon character can do. And which is notable because the original Bob, Bob 1.0, we'll call him Bob when he was alive, hated Homer Simpson. He hated the zaniness of all that. But we've gotten enough of a shift of emphasis of his character that the new Homer that's resulted is basically a willing and happy troll. And but it, and is willing to go along with Riker, even though Riker, you know, might want to kill him at some point, And they head back to Earth to see what's going on. And I think he, I think he's at least sixty percent willing to travel with Riker because he knows how much he pisses Riker off. Yes, um, it, it it's sort of in my mind of uh, so we used to have large games of capture the flag uh in in halo Halo. that that we used to play amongst all of you know pretty much all of our friends in in uh mangum and so we'd have like you know eight to ten different people and the most powerful weapon in the game basically is the rocket launcher Uh and so one of our friends who was very often teamed up with spencer his favorite thing to do would be to take that rocket launcher and team kill Spencer. and Every single game. And when he was on the opposite team, he would do the exact same thing. You know, it, it was, you know, his, his favorite thing to do was to go, you know, be right next to Spencer and cause Spencer pain. We pretty quickly learned that we had to be on different teams so that at least his killing of me could be vaguely productive. Um, but yes, he got no small amount of amusement of ringing my bell and jerking my chain because he knew how much I was dedicated to trying to win the damn game. So yes, our equivalents in this world are our 
I am very much the stand-in for Riker, and our friend Doug was very much the stand-in for Homer. Yes, though though, um, though we did all delight in in taking you know a couple of shots because Sp- Spencer is so is is very much ways. the uh, the the solid you know very Riker-ish. You know we need to do X, Y, and Z, um, and you know there's still some phrases like tower power that that will elicit some burst of, of of feeling in spencer's heart it's it's amazing how little is necessary to trigger a straight ptsd flashback if a certain tone of voice just says sorry spencer i start getting cold sweats well you know we do we do what we can to keep your life interesting so i pre- i appreciate that bj uh they go back to earth uh, and pretty quickly find that earth despite Indeed, being a blasted, a, a blasted, um, a withered landscape is still very much a war zone and about to reach what is already, say, a class three apocalypse to a complete death of the entire biosphere apocalypse. And what, interestingly enough, the uh, Dennis Taylor really describes is that the the planet's becoming uninhabitable through warming or cooling or essentially what could apart from you know the radioactive issues be basically attributed to climate change that you know there's there are inhabitable areas and there are non-habitable areas and there are sort of places where you can sort of vaguely survive but this you know sort of a self-destruction of our planet is at least in his two story so far is a theme of his and that technology can hopefully take us out of there or at least a a focus of of science and technology can can sort of save us from the uh our self-destructive tendencies and um because the earth in his case at least in this book is already well on its way to being a combination of the road and on the beach in terms of how habitable the planet is rapidly the habitability of the planet is rapidly descending into um a mix of impact and nuclear winter is rapidly putting the earth into a, a new form of ice age by which it may not recover from from i think they say up to ten thousand years yeah. and um, to make things even worse the brazilian probes that are still in orbit are very much intending to just win the war by leaving no one left alive yes and so basically they come into system they see that there are a couple of madeiras probes and that there are some uh yucatan crater size asteroids being propelled towards the earth like three of them right yes um all all set to hit china because apparently china won the nuclear war against brazil by just killing off of central, nearly all the population. And so these probes, despite knowing that it's going to end all of humanity left, including the surviving Brazilians, are just determined to get whatever revenge they can on China for the end of their empire. Um, and so uh, I think the it makes sense to sort of end with they, through a, another fun little space battle where, where you get a lot of... Uh, ecliptic points and and you know the you get the fun little space opera-esque space battle where they're all flying in different places and you know they're trying to figure out how to you know intercept missiles and things like that um basically take out the 
Medeiros probes and successfully figure out how to at least uh, stave off or dismantle these incoming asteroids and try and establish communication with Earth and uh -huh. see, see what they can do to uh, save Earth. And uh -huh. around this time, Bill figures out how to... Um, he figures out a bunch of ways to do a little bit more long-range uh, visualization. So they instead of radar, they have this thing called SUDAR. And he figures out how to um, basically establish faster-than-light communication. Making use of the fact that there was a random defect in his ship that prevented the uh, radar from having its normal strength, but finding that as a result of only being able to use essentially low-frequency signals, he can massively extend the range of his messages. Uh, uh, this, I would think you would agree, is probably the second of the most science fiction-y bits of technology we've got used here. That I'd say it's the third. What, what would you say? The uh, magic well, the second? drive power. Yeah, the, the never-ending acceleration drive, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, he sort of says, like, okay, we sort of have a fusion drive and things happen, but there's this basically fictional power, which, again, I appreciate, you know, basically every time that you're going to be in space and you're going to do things, either you have some way of obviating time or you have some way of obviating distance. And so uh -huh. instead of having dilithium crystals and a warp drive, they have the um, whatever the fusion drive is. I mean, they essentially are still borrowing from like, you know, hyperspace and that they've, they're making use of subspace to send faster than light communications. Yes. Um, so that, that's, that's just straight fiction, but it makes for a wonderful narrative arc in terms of the, of the ability of the Bobs to come together and create their own kind of joint culture across the cosmos. And talk with each other and keep them updated. And um, it gets even more interesting a little bit later on because um, they basically get to interact with each other in VR and, and really check in on each other. And I think the other plot line that makes this really interesting is... Bill goes to uh, Delta Eridani. Mr. Bob. Uh, yes, Bob. Bob goes to Delta Eridani because Bill doesn't go anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And he finds a planet that's in the Goldilocks zone, which, as he notes with surprise, that it seems to be more the rule than the exception that there are worlds that can develop and have developed life. And so he sets out with uh, the help of Guppy to, you know, set up another station. But, you know, what he's really interested in is exploring this world to find out if there's any interesting life on it. And very quickly, he finds that not only is there interesting life on this planet, there are bat pigs. There is at least. What, what do you say? There are bat pigs. There are bat pigs. There is intelligent life. Ugly as shit intelligent life, but quite capable of being uh, the subject of his interest for what amounts to about the next two or three decades. Uh, yeah, he, he spends quite a bit of time with them, and basically he finds a civilization that is right at the tool use and uh, tool building stage. And, and also... 
also at the near extinction stage too yes and so he sort of wars with himself as to how much he's going to influence this civilization and change its trajectory versus save it from um what hopefully he wasn't thinking of which is the uh homo sapiens versus uh you know choose your either the uh denisovians or uh or or the like but but we know that they didn't really kill each other they just we just sexed them to death so there is a certain amount of neanderthal that is still in our dna between uh fucking them out of existence and eating them out of existence we've made very efficient use of their material yes so so we got them uh, and and you know we we did the same thing with the hobbits in the uh island countries the so. human genetic code it proves remarkably diverse in terms of the number of other hominids that are currently inhabit inhabiting us <laughs> um luckily for this species that he later dubs the deltons uh riker is not in orbit nor any other star trek captain because bob very rapidly decides the prime directive is just not for him yep um, and he decides to intervene directly in essentially the god literally god in the machine coming down to rescue the deltons from a superior species of attacking predator that is coming up that is increasingly predating yes, a larger species that he calls the gorilloids that seem very happy to kill and eat any uh delton that they can get their hands on basically in some ways obviating their budding tool use and um, so he essentially starts figuring out how he can save these uh intelligent creatures uh, without uh, becoming the the bob in the sky <laughs> by pretty by pretty quickly developing a proxy by which he can interact with the society and eventually interact directly with this individual who he dubs uh, archimedes yep and so uh i think do you th- want to leave sort of the development of archimedes and the deltons along with the what happens with the humans and that should uh, wrap up the plot for the next episode. We've yammered for an hour and a half. I think that's probably a good enough place to stop. Uh, um, there's still a fair amount of plot to cover, and there are any number of philosophical points that we can discuss about individuality, coping with the uh, limitlessness, limitless, limitlessness of time, about uh, whether Bob is in any way related to the original Bob that was uh, alive on Earth, yep. about what degree of loyalty he still should have for the to borrow a phrase from the second book the ephemerals among us uh yeah Uh, so and there are many other things that we can talk about in terms of you know the development of these unique characters i mean we sort of vaguely mentioned that these are copies of bob but they all have their different personalities and go a little bit into how different their personalities are and then um, a little bit of world building, which is yeah. you know the other thing that we sort of mentioned that we usually talk about. Uh, it's which is a bit of a fraught concept with this one because I think, as you said before, for a book that really focuses heavily on plot and character development, the world building honestly I'd say is one of the weaker aspects of it. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, well, I think it is, and I think it isn't. And you know, once we get through the plot, I think that he does a very good job of building unique planets. Mm-hmm. but they're sort of within what could be our world. Yeah. It, 
we'll talk. Yes. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into, into it next week. There's, in, there's, in next episodes. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to say, uh, um, but we're going to have fun talking about it then. Uh, As said, we are discussing for this week and next week and maybe even a third one, depending on how much we yammer on. Uh, we are Legion. We are Bob by Dennis Taylor. Uh, as we go through this, we invite you to offer your own comments, your own questions, and your own points of debate that you'd like us to go into, as well as to address any future recommendations of other books you'd like us to consider as we uh, yammer on through the end of the year. So I, I actually think... already have a uh, listener, quote-unquote, question. Or we comment. have a listener? Uh, yes. Well, my girlfriend reads reads these books sort of either along with us or and I, I have no concept as to why she does this, which is, um, well, I'll put out, uh, I'll, you know, edit and put up an episode. She'll listen to a little bit of it, stop, then go back and <laughs> read whatever story <laughs> or book and then finish the episode. And it's like... She wants to get in. She wants to get interested first. I understand. Yes. And it's like, well, you know, we told you what we were going to read last time and I've told you what we read and it's also up on the website, but you know, whatever floats your boat. So, um, one of the things that she mentioned is that it's basically an all male cast. You know, it's a very male book and it's a male, very male trilogy. Um, particularly the first book yeah yes um so we had you know we didn't even mention her but there was sort of a a dr lander's assistant who um i might have written down her name or i might not have the d doesn't uh yeah i didn't write down her name um i I actually think maybe gotten this written down and no, you know a couple of his colleagues were female and and you know jenny was vaguely mentioned but you know it's it's pretty much male dominated and and i think my easy and quick response is that you know we had a bob's male and you know presumably the author wanted to address things from his perspective but there was also a um an authoritarian theocratic society that was very evangelical and so that there were a male dominated society is unsurprising and so that even you know and we'll come back to it a lot of you know some of the leaders that we interact with most you know some of them are male and some of them are female but for the most part Bob is male and in a lot of the early chapters we're just going to have male characters because those who are in power because of the society that we're in or that the book is in because it's theocratic and authoritarian. And, and I, I don't think even, you know, I don't think Dennis Taylor thought that much about it. It was, he wanted somebody that was like a preacher and he wanted somebody that, that was uh, like, um, uh, Sigmund yeah, Freud. yeah, Sigmund Freud. And so those were the images that he came up with, you know, Bob interacting with, and they were both male. So, you know, it, it all the other characters just didn't matter. Uh. I would buy the interpretation of the male folk society to a certain degree, except it also is proving true for the Deltons, who, over particularly the course of this book, have no relevant female characters other than love interests of his proxy stand-in Archimedes. Yeah, and even in you know in the next couple of books, you know, there's a send the the one female matriarchal 
kind of character is essentially his enemy. That he, he conspires to defeat because she is closed-minded and is stuck in her ways and is refusing to accept the trueness of Bob's word. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that while there are essentially female equals to certain projects, you know, in, in later books and there is, you know, some of that interaction that, you know, there aren't a lot of female centric chapters and there aren't any female bobs. And my guess to a certain extent is that's it could very well be for the same reason that Asimov didn't write any female characters for, for a large chunk of his life because he had very little female experience. And so, you know, if you write what you know, yeah. And he knows, you know, nerdy computer scientists. And so he writes nerdy computer scientists. I'm also very much of the view that Bob is his own stand in that it is not necessarily his Mary Sue, but is meant to be the author in the text to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, and just structurally from how he has built the book, every chapter is from the perspective of a Bob. So if there are going to be female characters, they almost inherently have to be supporting because you've already set your ground rules for how your bo- your book is going to be structured. Yep. Uh, but uh, it's Dr. Doucette, by the way, I looked it up. Ah, perfect. Thank you. Um, but as said, we've, we've talked enough this week. We got plenty more to talk about um, either next week or a few days. And I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, BJ, anything else that we uh, wanted to stri- um, discuss before we sign up for this one? Um, I think that that's it because, you know, we're actually doing a full-length novel. And, and as such, we've scared away a lot of our friends. Um, but we're probably <laughs> going to be talking about for at least a handful more episodes. And we'll figure out how many as we go forward. Um, and I guess I can do my normal. Um, you can... Get all of our content on mangumtalks.com, iTunes, and Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. You should check out all of our other stuff, um, and we have that on Mangum Talks, and we have our own subreddit, uh, also Mangum Talks, where you can get uh, GOT Got Questions with Spencer and Lee. Um, well said as well as Mangum Hoops, where Lee and the, his best friend, the best man at his wedding, Levi Baxter-Turner, talk uh, basketball stuff, and I've listened to it. I can say that it's entertaining, even if you don't know anything about basketball, which I mostly don't, but mostly for the people that are actually knowledgeable about basketball crowd um, and are very much you know everybody get together whiskey on the weekends our own little uh mangum moot you might say um where we get together and chat and drink some whiskey and uh just sort of enjoy each other's company and if you tune in to our next episode we're be going to be in the same place at the same time because one of our friends are getting married and we're all going to get together and drink some whiskey and spencer because he's a terrible person and can't follow directions is going to have to drink a lot of fireball so it's going to be really (laughs) amusing um and maybe we'll have some um postscript to our whiskey on the weekend because he's going to be drunk for a wedding fun uh you know the point of whiskey on the weekends was to try new things and experience an enjoyable way of spending a saturday and day drink fireball wasn't conducive to either of those yeah well the rest of us did it 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you got to experience that particular pain once again. And I'm glad you're going to get to experience it in five days, and I'm going to get to see you experience it, which makes it so much more delightful. I suffer for the enjoyment of the world. (laughs) Until then, folks, always a pleasure. Looking forward to talking with you again next week. Yep, sounds good, and uh, keep reading, guys.